God calls his children to be eternally thankful for his goodness. He wants us to be content with the things that he has given us. But he also wants us to understand the importance of his coming. The fact that he has come in time and in history to change time and history. A roll cover reading coming from the second psalm, the psalm of David, as David contemplates the majesty of the Messiah as he comes to declare his kingship over the entire global order. By inspiration of God, David, the king of Israel, writes this. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Ask of me and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and ye perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. The Apostle John writes, as he reflects upon the words of Moses in Genesis in chapter 1, by inspiration of God, John says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, without Him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness to bear witness of the light, that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word was made flesh, and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. As far as the reading of God's most holy, inerrant, and finally authoritative word, the grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but the word of God stands forever, and by his holy word is the gospel presented unto us again this day. Now at the outset, it must be understood that the coming of the Lord at his incarnation was only the beginning 
of the transformation of a world gone dark by the ravages of sin and the fall due to Adam's rebellion. The scope of the fall was comprehensive. As a consequence of Adam's disobedience, he lost Eden, and the world began its downward spiral under the curse of God. That scope of that rebellion, that scope of the fall, was comprehensive infecting every fiber of man's being and every societal institution and cultural order of man's world. Not only was the image of man corrupted along with every fabric of his being, but he also stood guilty before God, before the bar of God's justice, he was found guilty. The Reverend Andrew Sandlin observes this, he says, this is man's great predicament. Man is a sinner and God is a holy God. The entire world, not only man, but the entire world, stands guilty before him. Now, Adam's fall did not only ravage man, reducing him to his state of total depravity, but it ravaged the entire global order, including the physical universe. And this is why the Apostle Paul speaks about the entire global order, the universe itself, groaning under the weight of sin, waiting for the adoption of, the complete deliverance of the sons of men. Everything was infected by the fall. Everything was affected because it was infected by the fall. And it all began with man's rebellion against the law of God. Man's rebellion against God says, this is good. Man says, no, I have another idea about what is good. God says, this is what you should do. Man says, no, I think this is a better way to do what I think I should do. And I don't really care about what God is telling me what I should do. And that's the rebellious Side of man. Man thinks he knows better than God. Man thinks he's wiser than God. But the fall of the entire global situation began with man's rebellion against the law of God and his supreme authority. He was discontented with, with God and all that God had given him. God had given man in the garden everything that he could ever imagine. But he wanted more. He wanted the one thing he couldn't have. If not for the incarnation of the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the world would continue in a spiral downward into total dystopian oblivion. Without God's intervention, mankind and the created order, along with its societal construct, would be doomed. But that downward graveyard spiral, thanks be to God, that graveyard spiral downward would be arrested and brought to an end with the God-man's incarnation, atonement, and resurrection power. By Christ's entrance into history, he was able to single-handedly, all by himself, single-handedly, secure the total defeat of sin, death, and the grave, bringing about the subsequent reconstruction of the entire global order. And as a result of that incarnation, the incarnation of the Son of God, the marred image of man and his dysfunctional ideas of what right and wrong are, without that incarnation, the created order would be destroyed, but because of the incarnation, the created order, because of Christ's coming, would be reestablished into the image of God. Now in their book, Images and Idols, authors Thomas Terry and J. Ryan Lister explained it this way. The creator creatively became the created to recreate his creation. Read that again. It's the Creator creatively became the created in order to recreate 
His creation. Christ's incarnation and all that is associated with it was and is the only hope for the human race. It's not politics. It's not man's law. It's not saving the environment. It's the Christ of God. The coming of the promised Messiah initiated a universal global salvation program which brought certain men and women out of the darkness of sin and death and into the glorious liberation of light by the regeneration of their dead souls, all for the express purpose of transforming, or put it another way, of recreating the world by the application of God's law. While the Incarnation is the platform from which the salvation and global renewal is executed, it is actually the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and the resurrection spirit of His elect, which becomes the centrality of the Gospel of God in the face of Jesus Christ. All of this as a result of the Incarnation. The Church Father Athanasius clearly understood this. He says, quote, For in speaking of the appearance of the Savior among us, we must needs speak also of the origin of men, that you may know that the reason of his coming down was because of us, and that our transgression called forth the loving kindness of the word, that the Lord should both make haste to help us and appear among men. The coming of Christ at his incarnation initiated a global paradigm shift which was energized by the resurrection power of the Spirit of God given to the elect for the sole purpose of reconstructing the world. God's plan was and is and forever will be total and comprehensive. He will leave no stone unturned that he doesn't want to recreate. His plan was not to be sequestered into the realm of individual piety, but from the position of the individual's regeneration, every institution of man was to be engaged and changed. The manifestation of his resurrection power was first seen and felt at Pentecost, where it begins much of its march through the world. Athanasius again comments, he says, Behold how the Savior's doctrine is everywhere increasing while all idolatry and everything opposed to the faith of Christianity is daily dwindling and losing power and falling, gradually diminishing and coming to an end. As a result of the incarnation and the power of the regenerating spirit, the entire world, once Christ entered into history, began to go into a completely different direction. Christendom would now enter into the global theater with power, From darkness to light and from the power of Satan to the power of God, the world began to be recreated into what originally was to be a watered garden by the word of God. If not for the incarnation, if not for Christianity, we would not have Western civilization. We would not have America. We would not have Europe, in fact. The power of regenerating grace was to be the new driving force of civilizations establishing and ordering cultures throughout the world in the name of the true Messiah. By the third century, Christianity in the name of Christ spread throughout the entire world. All of this inaugurated by the incarnation of the Word, by the declaration of the Word, coupled with the application of God's law, men and women 
are then regenerated by the Spirit and in turn, they are empowered. And that's something that the church needs to understand. People of God who are truly born again are empowered in order to confront every area of the culture for the glory of the King and for the advancement of His kingdom. Not that we are empowered to shirk back and to hide in the four-wall ghetto church. Not to shirk back and be silent in the face of evil, in the face of darkness, in the face of corruption, but to be vocal. And that is what it means to seek the kingdom of God chiefly. To have that as your end goal. And while the beginning point of the gospel is the incarnate Christ, it is the power of the new birth that is the main focus of the gospel because of the coming of Christ. Without the regeneration by way of Christ's resurrection and the application of the Spirit's power upon the elect, the incarnation remains powerless to save and thus unable to return the world to kingdom righteousness. If Christ had just been incarnate and that was it, it it wouldn't have done anything. There would be no power behind it. But without the incarnation, there could be no reconstruction. There could be no resurrection. There could be no regeneration. So consider first the incarnation as it appears in history. Luke testifies to Theophilus concerning the historical veracity of Christianity and its gospel. The historical truthfulness of the gospel. Notice what he says in Luke chapter 1, the first verse and following. He says, For as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us, even as they delivered them unto us, notice this phrase, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. Eyewitnesses of an event. Luke is saying that the theology which was believed by the saints was framed within very specific historical events. These things were not just ideas. They were not just philosophies or theologies. They weren't just theories. They were all framed by real historical events. Note how he begins his gospel account in verse 5. There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zecharias of the course of Abia, and his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. Now these wondrous events of the coming of the Christ were witnessed in the confines of time and history. And That's what laid the groundwork for the establishment of Christianity. So the incarnation, we have to understand this, the incarnation is not only a theological doctrine, it's a historical fact. The reality of the incarnation is a historical fact. Christianity is a historical fact. Andrew Sandlin makes this very important point. Notice what he says, quote, The Bible and confessional theology are possible because of God's revelation in history and not vice versa. We can today catechize our children and instruct the church in theology because of the great events our Lord accomplished 2,000 years ago. We do not have Christ's life, death, resurrection, and ascension as Christian doctrines because of the Bible. We have the Bible because of Christ's life, death, resurrection, and ascension. History comes first. Christian belief is possible because of Christian history. That is the great redemptive work in history in the person of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ.
Theologian George Elad observes it this way. He says, The Christian faith stands apart from the religion of its environment because it is an historical fact. The God of Israel was the God of history. Christianity rose out of the historical experiences of Israel, old and new, in which God made himself known. This fact imparts to the Christian faith a specific content and objectivity which sets it apart from all others. The historical events of the Incarnation, the Resurrection, the Ascension, and the Pentecost give Christianity its concrete substance. And so it is not the mere knowledge of these events, theologically or confessionally, but the reality of their historical significance and their historical occurrence that sets the gospel apart from all other religions and which gives us that hope. John says very clearly, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us historically. In his epistle, He says that they were able to touch him and feel him and see him because he was a historical person. This gospel is a historical gospel. The incarnation is a historical event. The word made flesh happened in the confines of historical events. Paul makes this point to the church at Corinth, as does Peter In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that he was seen of about five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that he was seen of James, then of all the apostles, and last of all he was seen of me as one born out of due time. Notice, It's all happening in the confines of a reality, of a historical event. Peter says this, For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for you. In other words, he was made real, incarnate, manifested in the confines of history, in this historical occurrence, who by him do believe in God that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory that your faith and hope might be in God. Note how each of these men, both Paul and Peter, are relating to their hearers a sequence of very specific events that actually happened. These doctrines, therefore, are not idle speculations or fantastical philosophies coming from the minds of men. These are real events couched in history which give rise to theological truths. This is important because it testifies that God is not only the God of history, He is the God in history, working and ordering all things in history. He's working out all history because he's the God of history and he has come within history. And it is from the arena of history that God redeems history. Consider the crux of the gospel. Peter's testimony on the day of Pentecost expounds the gospel by targeting the resurrection and its ramifications. Note how First Peter points to the resurrection as it appears within the confines of history. Again, they keep going back to the fact, this really happened, this really happened, this is a historical event. It's not just something the philosophy's thought up. It's a real event. Notice, 
Men and brethren, Acts chapter 2, verse 29 and following. Let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David. Notice, he's already couching this in historical reality. That he is both dead and buried and the sepulcher is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He's couching this in history, in a reality, in events. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up. Notice, whereof we are all witnesses. We're seeing this unfold within the confines of history, in the confines of these real events. Now having established the importance of the resurrection from the dead, Peter then moves on to its ramifications. So he's saying, this is what happened. God resurrected. Christ is resurrected. And here are the the results. This is the ramification of his resurrection. And gloriously and wonderfully, he quotes from Psalm 2. He goes back to the patriarch David and he quotes the victory psalm of Psalm 2. Therefore, verse 33 and following, therefore being by the right hand of God exalted and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this which ye now see and hear for David is not ascended into the heavens but as he said of himself, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. And then he says, what does that mean? He clearly then says, This is what it means. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know surely that God had made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. The victorious Christ of Psalm 2. This statement was an earth-shattering declaration because it established in time and in history Jesus as the divine king of the universe who actually entered into history as part of a historical reality. They couldn't deny that. God raised up Jesus so that he might sit upon the throne of his kingdom enthroned in order to rule in the midst of his enemies within the confines of history. Not after history is gone and the world is in a blaze. But while history is still continuing. And because of his obedience, Christ is now highly exalted as king over all kings and lord over all lords. Notice how the Apostle Paul blends the aspect of the incarnation, the crucifixion, the atonement, the resurrection, the kingly enthronement, his universal conquest and final and total victory together in Philippians 2. In Philippians chapter 2, all of those aspects are contained in that statement. Consider it this way. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself. Incarnation and became obedient unto death, crucifixion, even the death of the cross, atonement. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, resurrection, and given him a name which is above every name, kingly enthronement. And at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, universal conquest. See how Paul is establishing all of those things, the incarnation, the crucifixion, the atonement, the resurrection, the kingly enthronement of Christ, his universal conquest. And then in verse 11 he says, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, final and total victory. All of those right there in chapter 2 of Philippians. Yet it is the resurrection, that resurrection fact, that is the hub of this glorious conquest and the core of the gospel hope. 
Paul also testifies to the Ephesians of this very fact in Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 17 and following. Notice that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe according to the working of his mighty power which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead at historical event and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named not only in this world but also in that which is to come and hath put all things unto his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church. Everything's couched in history. Now see how Paul joins the resurrection with the magisterial power of Christ. All in here, all in this Ephesians chapter 1 and and in Philippians chapter 2. Now one of the problems with the modern church as I see it, is its interpretation and understanding of the Incarnation and the ramifications of the Incarnation. For the postmodern church, the Incarnation is often viewed as an isolated event, only having meaning for the individual and the salvation of the soul. And, and, they, and they quote, Jesus came to save his people from their sins, and that is true. They think as if Jesus came as man so that man might be saved from his sin and his guilt, and that's true. But it's compartmentalized. It's, it's truncated. In this way, and in this way only, is the incarnation yoked with the cross and the resurrection. But at the end of the day, that view of the incarnation is reduced to theological self-adulation. It's all about me and my guilt, me and my Bible, me and my piety, me and my Jesus, me and going to heaven. Salem again weighs in. Notice what he says. He says, one of the prime defects of the modern church is its narrow interpretation of the gospel. The gospel preached in too many churches is simply a narcotic, a pleasant message designed to make people feel good. But the gospel presented in the Bible reorients man to the core of his being. It captivates him and turns him into an obedient son or daughter. The gospel of much modern Christianity is simply designed to assure self-centered moderns of a heavenly home. It is a drug appealing to their narcissism and deadening them to all that they find distasteful in life, end quote. If you think I'm too harsh, with my presentation of the gospel of the kingdom, God bless Andrew Sandlin. The narcissistic gospel is not the true gospel. We need to start calling it as it is, otherwise we will be swallowed up in that mindset as well. Now, Since the false gospel is not the good news by any stretch of the imagination, it can and does only lead to certain death. The gospel of Christ, while it has individual ramifications, also has strong cosmic ramifications. The resurrection gospel is the power of Christian reconstruction and the recreation of the world according to the image and mind of God. So Christ comes as the express image of God's person in order to recreate the image of man in the likeness of God and recreate the earth in the likeness of God. Not to keep things as it is, just waiting for the earth to just go to hell in a handcart and be burned up at the end of the world. Sandlin puts it this way, the cheap objective of man 
is to exert dominion in the earth under divine authority. This means peaceful liberty, enriching Christian dominance in every area of life. So the chief end of man is to obey, love and glorify God and enjoy Him forever. His occupation, by virtue of the resurrection power within, is to accomplish global dominion in righteousness for the glory of God. Van Til comments, he says this, Cornelius Van Til says, the individual believer has a comprehensive task. It's bigger than you and your Bible. It's bigger than you and your family. It's comprehensive, it's global. The individual believer has a comprehensive task. His is the task of exterminating evil from the whole universe. He must begin this program in himself. It is his first battle to fight sin within his own heart. This will remain his first battle till his dying day. But we must go one step further. It is our duty not only to seek to destroy evil in ourselves and in our fellow Christians, but it is our further duty to seek to destroy evil in our fellow man. We also have the further obligation to destroy the consequences of sin in the world as far as we can. End quote. Redemption sensitizes the redeemed to their sin and the enemies of the gospel. It draws a clear line in the sand as to what is good and ethical as opposed to evil and immoral. It also gives the Christian a clearer sense of the law's requirements and their oath to lose their life for the sake of Christ and the kingdom's advancement. You see, the new nature says, I'm giving it all to Christ and work as hard as I can as my breath is still within me to establish the sovereign crown rights in all of the world and within every societal institution. Till my dying day, I will seek to establish the crown rights of King Jesus. The resurrection power of the Lord empowers and enables the saints to fulfill their divine calling. You know, you might say to yourself, well, I, I, I don't have that strength in me. I, I don't know what to do. It doesn't matter. God will bring that to you. He will give that to you. He will empower you. He will, he will challenge you and he will enable you to do whatever he has called you to do. You don't have to, have to worry that you have it in yourself. You don't have it in yourself. It's not part of your nature. It's part of the new nature. Well, the incarnation sets the stage for the atonement. And while the atonement justifies the sinner before God's holy bar of justice. It is the resurrection that energizes and empowers the saint to live a holy life before God and productive for the kingdom's advancement. It is the resurrection of the Lord and its resurrection power imparted to the saint that activates the total work of salvation, that comprehensive work of salvation. Again, Reverend Sandlin asserts, he says, this is why the resurrection is central to the gospel. There can be no salvation without Christ's resurrection because it and not his incarnation and death activates the power of salvation. So it's the resurrection that is central to the gospel. Coupled with the new birth of the resurrection, of course, and this is what people don't like, is the duty and the responsibility of each and every one of God's people. We have not only a duty, but a responsibility before God. Rush Dooney sets this duty clearly before us. The modern church believes, and the leaders of the modern church want their congregants to believe that they can have Christ and their lives too. That they can have Christ and the world and everything in the world. But that is not what the gospel is all about. Rush Dooney says this, 
Salvation increases our responsibilities because it makes us responsible men and thereby, and this is what the modern church hates, and thereby increases our troubles. Salvation does not remove us from troubles, tribulation and problems. Rather, it thrusts us into them and at the same time gives us the assurance of victory in Jesus Christ. We may lose a battle now and then, but we will win the war. Now, Paul wanted to be intimately connected with God. He wanted to be intimately connected with the Lord. Now, observe what he lists as the first component of that connection. This is what communion with God is all about. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, he says this, that I may know him. That's what he wanted He wanted to know the Christ of the Scripture. He wanted to know the Christ of God. He wanted to know that incarnate Christ, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection. So many people think they know Christ, but they need to know the power of His resurrection. And this is what Paul wanted, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship, this is really what the church hates, and the fellowship of His sufferings, being made conformable unto His death. It's as if Paul is saying, without knowing the power of his resurrection, I cannot have any fellowship with his sufferings, nor can I mortify sin and the consequences thereof in the world. It is the resurrection of the soul that brings us into full communion with God. Paul tells the church at Rome, note the wording, Romans 5, 9, and 10, much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Notice, by His resurrection power, by His resurrected life. He continues in verse 11, And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. In other words, the result of the atonement, which is the resurrection of the soul. There is an even greater reason why the resurrection is central to the gospel which was begun by the Incarnation, the resurrection declares the sovereign kingship and authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. The resurrection, ascension, and coronation of the Lord is not an idea. Again, it is a reality. And that reality is at work in the world throughout history. It is a power, a working power within history with an unstoppable divine efficacy and purpose because it is the true power of God. Even when we look at the world today and we see the ravages of men's tyranny and the wickedness of sin and evil for good and good for evil, everything topsy-turvy, we can never ever think that there is no divine efficacy and purpose with the resurrected power of the Christ at work in the world. God is at work in the world. And because God is at work in this world, and because His work is a reality and His incarnation is a reality, make no mistake about it, that is a terrifying thing to the wicked. The message of the Lord's sovereignty is a message against the tyranny of the humanist who desires to be His God and not to have the Christ reign over them. Now, the people who lived during the days of Christ's incarnation understood that Messiah was lawgiver, judge, and king. And this was undisputed. Those that knew the scriptures knew this to be true. When Messiah comes, they believed, they knew that he would come as Lord and King. 
And so when the messenger of the covenant declared in Luke chapter 2 verse 11, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord, they understood the connection, and that connection was Psalm 2. That I will give you the entire global order as your inheritance. It would not be compartmentalized into the soul or into the church, it would be the entire global order. And what is so fascinating about verse 6, where the King James states, Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. The literal reads, I have poured out my anointed king upon my scattered hill of Zion. God is pouring out himself. His work in history, even today, is efficacious. It has a result. It may not be the result that we want at this moment, but it is resulting in things that God has determined. And this is a direct Reference This anointing is a direct reference to Pentecost when the resurrection power of Christ was poured out upon the masses. Note the prophecies speaking of the power of His resurrection. Two in particular, Proverbs one twenty three. Turn you at my reproof. Behold, I will pour out my spirit. In other words, I will pour out my resurrection spirit unto you. In time and history, I will make known my words unto you. And in Joel chapter 2, 28 and 29. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit. There it is again. I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also upon the servants and upon the handmaidens. In those days I will pour out my spirit. It's the pouring out of his anointed. Washing the world. Whether it's unto judgment or unto salvation. All of this as a result of the Incarnation. All of this as a result of the Incarnation and the subsequent resurrection victory. But it is Psalm 110 that is most quoted in the New Testament, which again establishes Christ as King, enthroned in heaven against the enemies of God and His law. Now while the promise was for the Lord to come as King and the Divine Majesty, He was there to conquer. But in order to, to, to conquer, He first had to come in his humiliation, in order to redeem his people from sin and the world from the curse of sin, he had to be humbled. So he had to humble himself. He had to become man, incarnate God. The beauty of the incarnation is not only seen in Christ's humiliation, but in his glorification as king over the entire universe. And this is why the apostle relates to this in chapter 2 of Philippians. He made himself, Paul says, of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself. Wherefore, God also highly exalted him. The incarnation was only the initial step, but it was the most important initial step. It was only the initial step in this comprehensive conquest to recreate the earth. And so before he could be exalted, before he could pour out his spirit, before he could take dominion over the earth, before he could send his people by empowering them into the world to change the world, to recreate the world, he first had to be incarnate. He first had to humble himself. And then, and only then, could he possess the gates of his enemies through the power of his resurrection. When Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, Joseph and Mary were told that the child was to be called Jesus for he would save his people from their sins. Redemption from guilt and the pollution of sin was granted to the saints of God for a purpose, so that they might accomplish what Adam failed to do. In other words, the cultivation and the subduing of the earth, so it might reflect God's original plan of Eden's paradise. 
And so the incarnation was the initial component. You might, you might look at the incarnation as the prerequisite event to a grand plan of global redemption, ensuring a salvation which has attached to it the hope of an assurance, the hope and assurance of universal and comprehensive victory. And so in everything we do, as part of everything we are, we are to be biblically minded in order to reconstruct all earthly things Godward in righteousness, justice, equity, and peace, beginning with ourselves, but not ending with the self, going forward to recreate the world in God's image. Anything less than that gospel of the kingdom's idea is a neglect of our covenant duty before God and man. May it never be said of us that we neglected so great a salvation by squandering the power that has been given to us upon ourselves in neglect of the greater calling of the gospel, that calling of gospel and global victory in the name of the divine King of kings, the Lord of lords, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And this we shall do, God helping us unto the praise of the glory of his grace. Amen.